Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics, from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue, and on this week's episode, Labour frontbencher Louise Haig claims Boris Johnson's red wall is starting to crumble following the Wakefield by-election loss for the Tories. There was a time not so long ago when we thought that we'd lost those people that voted Tory for the first time in their life in 2019, and that we'd lost them permanently. But the fact that they're able to feel like they can come home to Labour. And also, I spoke to many people um, in Wakefield who had voted Conservative their entire lives and were voting Labour for the first time, because I think they just saw um, in, in Boris Johnson a Prime Minister that they no longer trusted and in the Tory party that have propped him up and have repeatedly defended the indefensible, a party that they'd lost complete faith in. But first, over the last eight months, there's been a number of concerning stories coming from the North East and Yorkshire about thousands of dead crustaceans washing up on the shoreline. As well as the obvious environmental impact, the deaths are causing huge financial trouble for the region's fishermen. With me now to discuss all this and more is Scarborough and Whitby MP Sir Robert Goodwill who chairs the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee in the Commons. Sir Robert, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, a government investigation has concluded that an algal bloom is the most likely cause of this incident, but independent marine pollution experts have argued there could be other causes, and there have been calls for further investigation. I just wondered whether this was something your committee might consider taking up. Well, I raised this actually with the Minister last week at uh, DEFRA Questions, and um, they, they have, to be fair, they have been throwing the kitchen sink at this in terms of investigations, testing water, testing the silt that's being dredged, um, testing uh, anything they can test to try and come to the cause. And uh, it, it does seem to point at an algal bloom. For example, there is no, there are no toxins in the shellfish which you would expect if um, if it had been down to a poisoning incident. And indeed, if if you're dumping, I mean. Many of the fishermen seem to uh, have a theory that it may be caused by dredging of the River Tees. But this is killing uh, shellfish uh, 25 miles down the the coast from from where that uh, dredged material is being dumped. And and if if it was killing fish that far away, it would be off the scale at the point uh, where the dredging is being uh, actually done. And the, the University of Plymouth actually did uh, uh, produce uh, a satellite image of uh, the algal bloom, which not, there's no doubt there was an algal bloom late summer last year uh, and, and covering pretty much that area. And what happens is that the, the, the bloom builds because of the sea temperature and the availability of nutrients such as nitrates and phosphates. And then as those algae break down, uh, they can produce toxins or deplete the uh, water of oxygen. So the, the sort of symptoms we've seen with, with fish with no toxins uh, detectable in them, but, but dying, and the fact that, that it hasn't killed uh, fish uh, species which, which swim higher up, up in the sea. Uh, there, there was some research I saw um, linking a chemical called pyridine with possible mortality, but uh, DEFRA say, well, pyridine occurs naturally in, in shellfish. We have plenty of cases where we have high levels of pyridine and the fish have not been killed. So it does appear that the algal bloom is the most likely explanation, uh, but um, we didn't expect to see, I mean, albeit smaller numbers of shellfish uh, washing up uh, in the spring, but, but that does appear the most plausible explanation. But obviously, I think that um, as much 
continued research needs to be carried on. And indeed, in the parliamentary question I raised, I asked that all information uh, that, that DEFRA have should be made public so that independent scientists can look at it themselves. Well, I mean, just picking up on that point, I mean, Victoria Prentice in a Westminster Hall debate this week outlined much of, of what you've just said. and But she, she kind of said that we may never know 100% for sure what was the cause of this incident. And she outlined how there was a, a wider scientific study taking place at the moment, I think, which is due to report in March next year, potentially given a, a couple more causes for this. Just given those comments, I mean, can, can you understand why some fishermen are demanding more scrutiny and you know, a, a more independent inquiry into this? I, I think that, that we need to continue to do the science. We con- need to continue to take samples, um, particularly, or, you know, if the fishermen think it could be the material from the River Tees, we need to do more samples of that material. But currently we've drawn a blank on that. Um, if, um, you know, I think the latest theory I heard, it might be a nerve agent, which had been produced by ICI during the Second World War that may have, for some reason, leaked. But but if that was the case, one, it would have killed more species than just crab and lobster. And and, and two, it, it would have been diluted so much by the time it got 25 miles down the coast that um, that it w- wouldn't have, have had that effect. So uh, by all means, let's do as much more science as we can. But um, I have to conclude that in the absence of any conclusive evidence that the uh, explanation being given of the algal bloom, backed up by some evidence, I think is the most likely explanation. Of course, the, the fishermen, I think, would, would wish to be able to pin it on dredging because then they'd be able, there'd be somebody to, to pay compensation from. So, you know, if I was a fisherman, I would be very keen to find a causal effect and, and find somebody to blame, whether that be dredging of the tees, the offshore, um, uh, able offshore, which uh, breaks ships uh, in the area, or, or even some, you know, chemicals produced generations ago by ICI. Just kind of continuing with the, the financial aspect of this, I know Boris Johnson was asked at PMQs a few weeks ago about potential compensation or support for fishing firms. And he said, uh, well, he pointed towards this £100 million support fund. Uh, now, that is obviously kind of part of this Brexit dividend to the industry. I just wondered if you'd like to see kind of a bespoke fund to help with this singular issue for, for fishermen on your patch in, in the wider region. Well, yes, we, I mean, we ran an evidence session yesterday with Victoria Prentice on the £100 million support fund. And that, that is designed to help the fishing industry get ready for the tremendous opportunities that will be there as we come out of the common fisheries policy over this five year transitional period. And the uh, access to fish will, will increase uh, quite substantially. I, I won't use the word dramatically, but there will be better access to fishing stocks for the UK fleet. None of the parameters of that scheme would include compensation for fishermen uh, when uh, stocks um, are depleted in this way. But but I think there is a case to see if we can target some help there. For example, in in Whitby, in my constituency, we have a a lobster hatchery, which would certainly meet those criteria. And if we can actually start putting out more, I mean, when when lobster uh, shed their eggs, they shed them in in the tens of thousands. But... But only on average two will get through to maturity by taking those lobster through those vulnerable uh, phase stages of their life cycle early on in in a controlled environment. You can actually improve the number of lobster. But yeah, I was talking to a fisherman who was actually out at sea fishing, and he said they're getting about half as many uh, lobster as they were this time last year. They're having to travel further out to sea to get those, which means more diesel costs. Uh, and and although the price has 
improved somewhat, uh, they're still very much out of pocket, particularly given the price of uh, red diesel at the moment. Now, I mean, just honing in on Brexit, really, um, you know, obviously widely publicised at the time the deal was signed. There was there was anger in the fishing community about that initial kind of deal. I just wondered what the mood was currently, you know, 18 months or so on from, from when that deal was, was signed. What is it like on your patch at the moment? Well, I mean, the majority of uh, fishermen in my area will use static gear to, to uh, catch crab and lobster, which are a non-quota species. The the um, conservation of crab and lobster is carried out using a landing size um, criterion uh, and also the fact that you're, you're not supposed to uh, land buried hens. So your know, lobster, which have those um, orange eggs uh, underneath them. And indeed, it, you know, to scrub the eggs off a buried hen is, is quite a, is a very serious offence. So, you know, the, the, the actual uh, changes in terms of crab and lobster have not been uh, really very dramatic at all so far as leaving the European Union. But what is good news is we got that trade deal uh, when we left the European Union because the majority of crab and lobster caught off the Yorkshire coast and indeed Bridlington, not not in my constituency, just down the coast, Bridlington is the biggest shellfish port in Europe and the majority of of these uh, shellfish are carried in um, big tanks uh, alive down to France and Spain where, where there is a premium market uh, for that product, um, and indeed, other other crab have, have flown to uh, China in the in the in the in the in the, uh, the holes of wide-bodied jets. And of course, during the pandemic, we didn't have the jets flying, so that trade was not so good. But um, so so far as as the Scarborough and Whitby fishermen, in the main, we've not been affected by uh, Brexit. Uh, but certainly, there are uh, Whitby registered vessels fishing further north the cod, uh, landing in Scottish ports. You know, they are looking forward to getting a bigger slice of the quota available. Currently, we're going to go from about a third to half of the fish available. But it must be borne in mind that, um, and, and I think anyone who understands the fishing industry and as former fisheries minister, uh, I very much do understand it. Uh, stocks have to be managed by the countries, in this case, EU, Norway and the UK, where those fish uh, can be. And there's no point in saying, well, let's catch all the fish when they're in British waters because you know we will destroy the stock so we use a system called zonal attachment so we agree how many fish can be sustainably caught and then we divvy up that quota between the nations who uh have sea in the in those zones uh, and then you, we can go and catch in norwegian or european waters and vice versa so we will get a bigger share of that fish and of course on the inshore waters uh, they will get a, a much better deal uh, and, and almost the biggest proportion of, of those inshore species actually are exported. I mean, not many people realise we actually import most of the fish we eat in the UK and we export most of the fish we catch. And so therefore having a, a good trade deal with the rest of the EU was absolutely vital um, as we left due to Brexit. I mean, I think you alluded to this in, in your earlier comments. I mean, obviously, that, that deal with, that was signed was, you know, a transitional temporary arrangement and all this will be kind of reopened in is it 2025, 26, I think around that time this deal will run to. I just wondered, obviously, given the difficulties over the fishing negotiations the last time around, what's to say, why would kind of France give way in, in a couple of years' time on this issue? You know, is the sea of opportunity, as the fishing industry likes to talk about a lot, a real thing, or, or will we kind of have another compromise in a couple of years? Well, it will always be a compromise because... Um, we, we'll be, instead of being part of the EU and negotiating with the EU and then 
divvying up the quota between the EU countries, we will be like Norway or the Faroe Islands and, and in a, a strong position to make the case for getting a better share of the quota. And of course, within the 12 mile limit, we'll have much more control. And, and I think that's going to be very important for some of the smaller vessels, particularly on the south coast, who, who land in, in place like Brixham. Um, and um, I think there, there are great opportunities and the, the, the fund that we were talking about, the 100 million, is there, for example, to improve facilities in ports, uh, to ensure that um, uh, we can store and process. There's a lot of help for um, onshore processing to ensure that when we do catch these fish, they can be brought to market in a very cost effective way. Now, fish aside, I just wanted to uh, turn it to the levelling up agenda. A key part of that is obviously devolution and the potential creation of mayoral authorities. We've obviously just had parliamentary approval for a new North Yorkshire County Council. I just wondered if you'd like to see uh, an elected mayor for the region and, and if there were any names that you could, uh, could think of that would be a good advocate for uh, North Yorkshire. Well, in a word, yes. I mean, having a, a, an elected mayor for North Yorkshire and the city of York, I think, will be a great opportunity for us to devolve powers to, from central London to that member. And we've seen, for example, with Ben Houchen uh, on Teesside, who's, who's really making a difference. Indeed, you know, when he was re-elected, uh, you know, bearing in mind we're talking about Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, Stockton, you know, not, not the Tory heartlands, he got 75% of the vote because they could actually see things that he delivered for people on Teesside and he's continuing to deliver uh, for people there. And I think having a mayor for North Yorkshire, who would take over the existing powers of the Police and Crime Commissioner, for example, Police, Fire and Crime Commissioner, but also have a key role to play in, in many strategic transport policies. And, and I think also, I think tourism would be a, a great one for the mayor to take responsibility for. And we're looking to have an election in 2024. Uh, and, and I'm sure we'll get a great candidate. I mean, I've been approached lots of times and I'm, I've told people that I'm not going to go for the mayor. Uh, but uh, th there are you know, some very, very good people in North Yorkshire who would be, I think, excellent mayors. And, and I would be very um, optimistic that we would get a Conservative mayor, which I think would be even better for North Yorkshire, because then the mayor could work with the government. And I think it, it always works better when you've got a mayor from the same party as the government, as we've seen with sort of Andy, Andy Burnham and the mayor of London, sort of always sort of trying to make, score political points rather than actually getting on with the job of delivering. That's an interesting point you raised there. So do you think it actually impacts an area's ability to level up depending on what party is, is in charge in City Hall? Um, I, I think it helps working together constructively as opposed to maybe seeing the political opportunities. I mean, you know, both um, uh, Mr Burnham and uh, Mr Khan have ambitions, I think, to be the next leader of the Labour Party. Uh, and therefore, you know, scoring political points is something that they probably feel is part of their mission to, to, to secure that job. Now, you know, scoring political points does not always sit comfortably side by side with actually working constructive together. I mean, I'll give you an example. Dan Jarvis, who was mayor of South Yorkshire, he, he didn't fall into that trap. He, he was an excellent mayor in South Yorkshire, despite I mean, he's a good friend of mine. But despite being from a, a different party, he really understood how to deliver for the people of South Yorkshire and work with the government. So, yes, you know, I, I think you know one can work with people from other parties. But there was always that temptation that political point scoring could possibly um, uh, slightly put delivery uh, lower down the agenda. And, and you know, I, I would be 
critical, you know, certainly of Mr. Burnham, who who is, is not necessarily, I believe, worked as constructively with the current government, you know, who, who got elected with a big mandate, uh, elected by a lot of people in Greater Manchester, it has to be said, with all those red wall seats. Uh, so personally, I think, you know, it would be great for North Yorkshire to have a Conservative mayor. Um, and I think that would help the collaborative working that uh, we, that needs to take place. I, I mean, you may remember I was actually a big supporter of the of the sort of one Yorkshire uh, having a mayor for the whole of Yorkshire, uh, which I think would have even been better, and that would have been possibly a Conservative in some years, possibly Labour in others. But it would have meant that if we were, say, the Prime Minister was going on a trade mission to India, um, having a mayor representing as many people pretty much as Scotland. Uh, that person will get a seat on the flight. I think it might be more difficult to have a mayor of a slightly smaller area um, to, to actually be there uh, promoting the region. But I think, you know, from our point of view, having a mayor in North Yorkshire is a great idea. And incidentally, we also, I, I believe, need to have a, a town council in Harrogate um, and Scarborough, because that means that they will have that bottom rung of local government, which everywhere else in my constituency has a town or parish council, but Scarborough itself in the centre doesn't. Just briefly, I just wondered, could you ever see that coming back to to the table, the one Yorkshire deal, or is that is that dead forever? That deal, do you think? I think it's probably dead for a generation. You know, we, we we've just gone through a local government reorganisation. I think you know it would be unlikely that that that, that would happen. So I think you know we uh, we made our we made our bid and we were uh, not so successful. I, I think people, certainly people in West Yorkshire, uh, were keen to have their own unitary and. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, yeah, who knows? But maybe you know, North Yorkshire and East Yorkshire might join together in some time. But I, I really think that, you know we don't need to have local government reorganisation every five years. I think that doesn't lend itself to uh, effective delivery. And finally, uh, just on Boris Johnson, uh, you, you obviously backed him throughout the whole Partygate affair, but with rumours of more Tory defections to Labour and obviously the by-election losses, I just wondered, do you believe his position is tenable long term? I think time will tell. Time will tell. Um, I mean, I, I've been disappointed by some of the decisions made by the current government. Certainly when Dominic Cummings went to the North East, I thought he should have been sacked. Um, I think the Owen Patterson affair wasn't dealt with very well. But if you look at some of the important issues like the pandemic, you know, we, we, we were the first to get vaccine into people's arms after Israel, I think. Uh, we were the, uh, we had a, the furlough scheme meant that businesses didn't fail. Um, we have an excellent team supporting Boris, um, and you know I think we should we should look at it in the round. But um, uh, certainly um, there are still many colleagues on the back benches who um, feel that a change might be a good idea. Uh, I think you know if, if, if Boris can demonstrate he can continue delivering, then maybe some of those people will change their minds. Last week saw the first major strike on the railways for 30 years, with workers walking out in a dispute over pay and conditions. There's also been huge disruption in West Yorkshire with bus drivers entering the fourth week of industrial action, and we've got potential strikes from teachers coming down the track. The government have blamed what they term union barons and the Labour Party for the disruption, and Boris Johnson has so far taken a hard line, telling the nation we must stay the course. With me now to discuss all this and more is Sheffield MP and Labour Shadow Transport Secretary, Louise Haig. Louise, welcome. Hi. 
So how do you assess the government's response to the strike so far? Well, uh, I think it's become painfully obvious throughout that not only are the government not interested in trying to avoid uh, this industrial action happening, they're actively um, stoking the uh, the division around it and actually provoking uh, these strikes. Grant Shapps, my opposite number, the Transport Secretary, has not met with the industry and the unions for over two months now. He's not spent any time at the negotiating table trying to avoid uh, the strikes, which is frankly, a complete dereliction of his duty. And, um, you know, if I were if I were Transport Secretary right now, if Labour win the next election, then that's exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be sitting down and doing everything I could to try and avoid this happening because it was enormously disruptive last week. And it's the last thing anybody wants to see is strikes going ahead. It hurts working people. It hurts the people that are striking, by the way, as well, because they're sacrificing pay. So it's not good for anyone and it represents a complete failure. Um, and where we are in power, actually, at the moment in, in Wales, Labour has done exactly that. We work in social partnership with the industry, with the unions, and we've avoided, we've avoided strikes happening because we sit down and we're grown-ups. Unfortunately, we've not got grown-ups in government at the moment. They're more interested in casting around and finding anyone else to blame. And it is completely laughable that they uh, are trying to hold the Labour Party responsible for strikes when we've been in opposition for 12 years. I mean, you mentioned Grant Shafts there. I mean, he has obviously been hammering the fact that Labour takes donations from unions and he's, you know, keeps suggesting that your party is, is somehow culpable. Is, is Labour compromised on this issue? And will that attack from the Tories wash with the British public at all, do you think? I think like people are really, really sick to death of the government not taking any responsibility and seeking to find these divisions and play political games. You know, I was campaigning throughout the by-election in, in Wakefield and the, the resounding message from the doors was people are sick of not being able to get a GP appointment, things not working properly, not being able to get their passport, not being able to get on holiday okay. You know, the, the absolute basics aren't working in this country because the government isn't governing properly. And when they see people like Grant Shapps just going on the t- TV, defending Boris Johnson and then playing political games rather than rolling his sleeves up and trying to fix some of these very deep problems that are hurting ordinary people. Um, I think they see right through it. So, no, I feel I feel confident um, that we're holding the government to account properly on this, that we would be doing a very, very different job if we were in government. But also, I'm totally unashamed of Labour's relationship with the trade unions. The Labour Party was born out of, out of the trade union movement. We're here to represent the interests of working people. And I'll never apologise for that. Uh, you mentioned the Wakefield by-election there. You obviously played a, an instrumental role in that. I just wondered how big a win that was for Labour. Um, well, I tell you what, I mean, I, I'm always panicky on election day. So I was like, I, I basically spoke to like three people that were voting Conservative. So I was like, oh my God, we've, we've lost, we've lost. I was telling everyone we were definitely going to lose. So it, the, the scale of the win um, came as a massive surprise to me. It definitely exceeded our expectations. Um, because, as you know, in by-elections often it's a, it's a much lower turnout. But even with a much lower turnout, we still had a majority um, at almost as big as the last time we won a general election. And it was a swing to the Labour Party that, if replicated across the country, would mean that we would win the next general election. So it's uh, it was an extraordinary result um, in a seat that you know many have classed as the Red Wall. There was a very 
there was a time not so long ago when we thought that we'd lost those people that voted Tory for the first time in their life in 2019 and um, that we'd lost them permanently but the fact that they're able to feel like they can come home to Labour and also I spoke to many people um, in Wakefield who had voted Conservative their entire lives and were voting Labour for the first time because I think they just saw um, in, in Boris Johnson a Prime Minister that they no longer trusted and in the Tory party that have propped him up and have repeatedly defended the indefensible, a party that they've lost complete faith in. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that our election uh, last week in Wakefield put us firmly on the path to power at the next general election. You mentioned the swing in Wakefield there. I mean, if, if you broaden that out across the north, I think the Tories could lose up to 45 seats. What had shifted for you in terms of the, the Red Wall? I mean, is it more to do with kind of Boris Johnson and Partygate and all the endless kind of scandals and golf in the Tory party at the moment? Or do you think it's people actually coming back to Labour and, and supporting kind of Labour's vision? Yeah, I mean, you don't get um, a swing like that or and a, a result like that when it's just when it's just a vote against. And I think, you know, it's in, in Wakefield, it's different from that by-election in Tiverton in, in Devon because the Lib Dems are seen as much more of a protest vote. People don't vote Labour in protest because there's a chance that we could win and Keir could be Prime Minister. So it is an actual positive choice to vote for the Labour Party over over the Conservatives. And I think, you know, Partygate and Boris Johnson's repeated lying and the contempt with which he's treated the country undeniably came up time and time again. But the cost of living crisis was number one on, on people's minds. And, you know, when you can't afford to pay your bills, when you can't afford to fill up your car, you can't afford your weekly shop, um, as I say, they want a government that's going to roll up the sleeves and, and, and get that fixed. And at the moment, the government has absolutely no plan to tackle inflation, to bring down prices, to get more money in people's pockets. The only thing they're telling working people is then they shouldn't be asking for a pay rise because that's going to drive up inflation even further. And that's just not good enough from the people of Wakefield and Tiverton. Just turning to uh, transport now, the Manchester Evening News has launched a campaign seeking to stop what they say is a short-sighted plan to build an overground rather than an underground HS2 station in Manchester. They've warned that it'll cause a decade of chaos in the city and it'll cost the local economy more than £300 million. Would you like to see the government rethink this plan? Yeah, so this is just one of the many issues that were part of the government's integrated rail plan that was announced last year because it is anything but integrated. And because they're not delivering what they promised the North in full, it is cutting off our ambition. You know, as you know, we've spoken about before, they are no longer delivering the eastern leg of HS2, so that's cutting off Sheffield and Leeds from HS2. They're not delivering full Northern Powerhouse Rail, uh, which would have connected our northern towns and cities, massively improved connectivity. And because they're not delivering this station in Manchester, it means that um, HS2 can't go on beyond Manchester and connect up to uh, up to Leeds and to other cities as well. So they really are, you know, cutting off our ambition and, as ever, focusing all their you know investment in in London and the southeast. And it's the north that has to pick up the pick up the scraps that were offered. At Prime Minister's questions last week, Boris Johnson claimed that he was gonna build Northern Powerhouse Rail. You know, do you think the Prime Minister is reading a different integrated rail plan to the rest of us? And I, I, I just, I just wondered really, you know, how how do you address things like that where you know it's so clearly the case that if you look at the integrated rail plan, it's not what was promised, but then you've got the Prime Minister saying, no, we are doing that. I mean, how, how do you begin to approach that? I know it's a totally different ball game uh, opposing Boris Johnson because it, and it is kind of Trumpian in the way he approaches politics just to say black is white and up is up is down and it's it is difficult when you, you know you're not play, you're not 
playing with someone who's, who's playing by the same rules. Um, I never know with him with the integrated rail plan, and when he's asked about asked about this, whether he actually doesn't know uh, or whether he's just straight up lying. Because <laughs> he's every time he gets asked, he gives a different answer. He's confused Bradford with Leeds more times than I can count now. So you know, he's not a man of of detail, and he's clearly losing interest fast in uh, in the so-called red wall and in the north. Um, and you know, he's not del- he's not delivered or delivering any of the promises that he made to us, either on rail or on levelling up. And come the next election, um, people will um, people will respond to that. And finally, uh, just on levelling up, uh, our earlier guest on the podcast, Sir Robert Goodwill, suggested that areas electing Tory mayors could be looked on more favourably by central government. Is this whole agenda just pork barrel politics, do you think? I mean, there is no real strategy behind levelling up at all, is there? It's just picking um, areas and, and things to throw a bit of cash at so that Tory candidates can have it on their leaflets. The only way to deliver levelling up is to get people more money in their pockets to drive up income so they can spend it in their local economy. You know, giving the high street a lick of paint ain't going to um, make much difference to people if they can't afford to shop on it. So um, I think, again, like people will see through it that this agenda was nothing more than a, a very cheap way to get the Tories through the last election. And I think it's probably not going to get them through another. I mean, and also, obviously, I think there was a bit of anger a couple of weeks ago when the uh, Leveling Up and Regeneration Bill was published. There was clauses in there which seemed to give ministers a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card in terms of the, the timetables for delivery, because obviously this 2030 date was it was a big key promise, really. Do you have any faith that these missions will be delivered by 2030? Uh, no, because the, the white paper that Michael Gove laid out that sort of set out the reason why we need levelling up in this country, I actually didn't disagree with very much of it. You know, the analysis in there about regional imbalance and particularly about inequality um, in, in income and in productivity was absolutely right. They've got the analysis right. They know what's wrong in the country, but the Tories are ideologically incapable of fixing it because you need a government that is prepared to invest in people, invest in places and stand on the side of those places that need that that need help and need help to 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 deliver on their own ambition and the Tories are never and can never be that party so uh, I've got absolutely you know no confidence at all that they'll de- deliver on that and I think the confidence of the British people is fast waning in them as well. listening to the northern agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for northern voices to be heard the northern agenda is a laudable production for reach it's presented by me rob parsons and dan o'donoghue and it's produced by daniel j mccoughlin if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the northern agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts including apple and spotify Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.